You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Chapter 1, be reading from verses 9 through 15. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you. I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Redemptional Church. Uh, Morning, yeah. Today we got family worship, so kids are in. Kids, you're not a burden. You are a blessing. Uh, if uh, some of the kiddos do get squirrely, uh, we have a restless kids' room right across the hallway where we pump in the, uh, the audio of the sermon. So, before I begin, I see uh, Hugo. I see a new little one. I'm going to welcome the rights back. Yeah. Megan, Clayton, Hugo, and Ivy, and a special welcome for the first time, Hazel Rosemary Wright. So, welcome to Hazel Rosemary Wright. Uh, born October 12th at 5 p.m., weighing in at 4 pounds, 12 ounces. Those, that's what Clayton gave me. So, if that's wrong, I'm going to go talk to him. Uh, we love celebrating newborns, and so this rose right here is a symbol of our love and support for Hazel and the entire Wright family. We are thankful to God that you're okay and she's okay. If you don't know, she was born premature, was in the hospital for several weeks, and they were on lockdown during the sixth season, uh, and rightfully so. So when uh, Clayton sent me a text earlier this week, hey, we're going to be at church on Sunday, uh, I was like, yeah. And then I, and I told Logan, and he's like, yeah. So we're excited that you're, that you're back, and we praise God for your health. All right. We are going through our sermon series called The Grace of Salvation. Uh, In this sermon series, we are looking at what it means for God to save, right? It has implications in a moment, but also it's a lifetime. And when God saves, he calls his people to respond. One of of the shames of, of what has been done to Christianity in general is that we think of it just this moment, and all of a sudden I don't go to hell, where actually... 
when the Lord saves, there's radical changes we're going to see today, and it's a call that you must respond every single day of your life. The call of God to save is not only momentary, but it lasts a lifetime. Yes, there is a moment when God regenerates the cold, dead heart. See last week's sermon. But after God causes a person to be born again, the journey with God has just begun. Perhaps explaining how the word save in the Bible, that word save, perhaps explaining how that is used in the Bible will help you understand the trajectory of this sermon series, kind of where we've been, where we're at today, and where we're going. The word save, it's just sozo in the Greek, in the verb form, is used in the past, present, and future tenses. If you're, if you're an English person, you're like, yay, I get you. That's all I know about English, by the way. Tenses. Past, present, future tenses. I've mentioned once or twice in the last few weeks that the verse Ephesians 8, right? I've mentioned that a few times. Uh, for Christians, there is an assurance that we have already been saved. In Ephesians 2, the word saved is used in the past tense. We also read in Holy Scripture that those in Christ continue to experience salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read, and I'm quoting, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, present tense, it is the power of God. The process of salvation is ongoing in our present reality. God has saved and God continues to save in the present tense. His atoning work, the atoning work of Christ at the cross has saved you and now the Holy Spirit continues to work out your salvation. You know the passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Another example of kind of a present tense, an ongoing work. So today and next week, you will see this emphasis from God's word as we talk about what it means for God to save. Finally, those who are in Christ will experience salvation in the future. So past, present, future. Romans 5, 9 tells us, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So from wrath to come through Christ. The grace of salvation has taken place, is taking place, and will take place. More than just the past and present, salvation points to the future. Yes, the wrath of God has been poured poured out upon the Son and has saved sinners, but there is a final judgment to come when God will judge the living and the dead. And God has promised to save you, Christian, from the wrath to come. So this sermon series has a similar trajectory as we think about the word save or salvation in the New Testament in particular. So I hope that makes sense. We've only a few more weeks in this sermon series, and then we're going to get into the book of Hebrews, as I've mentioned in the past. And I'm looking forward to that. I, I think if you had to like pin me, like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Like, or put me in the corner, I think it's probably Hebrews. I love Hebrews. So much fun. Uh, it's, a, it's the greatest exposition of the Old Testament, as I've said before. But if you want to know what the Old Testament is all about, read the book of Hebrews. So one of my goals, as we go slowly through Hebrews, is, is to make sure we are all Old Testament scholars as we go through Hebrews. Let me pray, and then we'll get into today's message, focusing on, I called this message, the path of revival, and uh, I'm going to explain why. So let me pray, ask for God's help, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, you are good. First, Lord, we thank you for the right family. 
We thank you that they're indeed here and they're healthy. And we rejoice um, at the birth of, of Hazel Rosemary Wright. Pray, pray that you bless that family, continue to care for that family. And as it pertains to the preaching of your word this morning, Lord, we come underneath your word knowing it is objective and authoritative for us. You have spoken and you continue to speak. I do pray for all of our hearts and our souls in this room that as we look to your word and as we think about repentance and faith, that in the power of the Spirit, you would indeed be working in our heart. We invite that this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people have been asking me over the last few weeks now about what is going on at Asbury University in the Theological Seminary. You know, I'm a pastor, and I, and I teach at a Christian institution, so it's natural to kind of field those questions. And if you don't know what's going on, let me explain to you real quick. On February 8th, students continue to worship after their regularly scheduled chapel service. So they had chapel, which is pretty common at a Christian university. And uh, chapel ended, and the students just continued to worship. That's what what happened. And uh, it hasn't stopped. So it was February 8th, and today's the 25th, 6th, whatever. 24-7. People are singing and praying. So, what are we seeing at Asbury University and Theological Seminary? The question I've been fielding is this. Are we witnessing revival? Revival, if you don't know, is a spiritual awakening from a state of spiritual complacency or apathy. That's my definition. It's an awakening. Spiritual awakening. The short answer is, I do not know, because frankly, I'm not there, <laughs> right? I think it's a little presumptuous to say, How are we, what, what, what do we got going on there? Well, I'm not there. I mean, I can see 15-second video clips, but I don't know if that 15-second video clip tells you the whole story. When things like this happen, history tends to be the best judge. So I don't know. But I, what I do know are the ingredients for revival. I know the ingredients for revival. That's plain and clear, I think, from God's Word. If you were to study the history of revivalism going back to Pentecost, Acts 2, you would see that repentance and faith are the hallmarks of revival. Christians would repent of sin. Non-Christians would repent from sin. Christians would seek greater knowledge and affection for God, and unbelievers would be saved by God's grace, and they would seek affection from God, a greater affection for God, excuse me. Sure, other elements accompany revival. Three obvious functions are worship and song, prayer, and the preaching of God's word. All of this seems to be happening at Asbury. Historically speaking, we've Seen pastors, God used pastors to spark revival. For example, George Whitfield from the Great Awakening from the 1730s and 1740s was an outstanding, charismatic preacher. As a matter of fact, I remember one time I was in Philadelphia and I stood in the spot, so they say, outside in in the streets where Whitfield would preach to, to, to hundreds, perhaps thousands of people with his booming voice. 
And God surely worked through that man to bring about revival, along with Jonathan Edwards at that time. Billy Graham of the 20th century is another example of a phenomenal preacher that God used to draw people to Christ. But is preaching the key ingredient for revival? Surely a revival needs to be marked by outstanding worship music, right? I mean, top-notch music with strobe lights and a fog machine. <laughs> Listen, good, good preaching helps cultivate revival, surely. Um, you wouldn't want bad music to be a distraction. What I'm attempting to communicate is that when it comes to revival, preaching, prayer, and singing are a means that lead to, or they should lead to, repentance and faith. The pillars of revival are repentance from sin and faith in God. Repentance from sin as it's identified in Holy Scripture and faith in the one true living God. That can start a revival in the human heart. How about your family at home? In this local church? And in our community? As I studied and prepared for this message while thinking about revival... I am reminded that the battles that are taking place in culture is a symptom of a greater battle taking place in the human heart. There is a spiritual battle for the human heart it, right in you, right inside of me. Spiritual battle in the human heart. And for when a person or a people or a community or a country repents from sin and trusts in Christ, you can be assured there are going to be downstream effects. Now, the question you could ask me in light of everything I just said, why are repentance and faith the pillars of revival? Why? Did I just cherry pick these two features of the Christian faith because it's convenient for this sermon and sermon series? I highlight repentance and faith because they are the heart of the call to the gospel. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we read that the first words recorded of Christ, which kick off a three-year gospel ministry, Jesus says, or it's been recorded, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. These are the words of Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, how significant is it that these are the first words recorded of Christ in the gospel of Mark? Well, I don't want to overstate the significance, and I do not want to understate the importance. However, the twin message of repent and believe has always been God's message to a broken world. That is the message to us this morning, and as Dean prayed to the, to the broken world that is all around us, repent and believe. With this message, God invites you to draw near to him to receive healing in those broken places. Therefore, we should not be shocked that these are the first words of Christ as we see in the Gospel of Mark. In a moment, 
I'll dial into the significance of faith and repentance. But I first want to point out the, the surrounding literary context to show you why Jesus has the authority to speak to us, repent and believe. Let's see why Jesus has the authority to say that to us this morning. His authority is highlighted in two separate scenes leading up to verse 15. First, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. We read about the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11 in Mark 1. Uh, Dean read that and let out with that a few minutes ago. In this passage, Jesus goes to John the Baptist, right? Mark, the gospel writer, gets to the point. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove in the waters of the Jordan. And the Son hears these words from the Father, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In this passage, we see the Holy Trinity. Right? We read that the first and third persons of the Trinity converge on Jesus, like openly and publicly. Like I just, there's some scenes you just you wish you were there for that. That would be one of them for me. Jesus in the waters of Jordan, Holy Spirit falling like a dove voice, like sign me up for that. There is no confusion, there should be no confusion, that Jesus has the authority of God to preach repentance of faith because he is God. He's the Son of God. Jesus has the authority to tell us what to repent from and what to believe in. Like, everyone's cool with Jesus until he tells you to repent, (laughs) And he's, we got God's word. He's very specific. What do we repent from? Well, we look to here. We also see why Jesus has authority in the next scene. But the reason why he has authority is more subtle. After Jesus is baptized, he is immediately ushered into the wilderness by the Spirit, verse 12. Once again, the gospel of Mark is, is brief and to the point. Satan tempted him, but Jesus withstands the temptation. Here's the subtle way in which we see the authority of Christ in the temptation of Christ. The picture of Jesus being tempted by Satan should remind us of when Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden. I say Adam and Eve because even though Eve first ate the fruit, the buck stops with Adam. Adam was derelict in his duty. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam did not resist temptation. Therefore, that's why we can't place our hope in the first Adam, in the authority that he brought. But Jesus represents the second Adam. And Paul, in in the book of Romans, makes this clear. He calls Jesus the second Adam. Jesus did what Adam could not do, resist the temptation of Satan. Jesus resisted temptation, demonstrating he has authority to preach the message, the gospel, that would relinquish the power of Satan. The Son of God and the Son of Man tells us how God overcomes the power of sin and Satan. It is through repentance and faith. Here are verses 14 and 15. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, I mean, what is the gospel of God? We already saw this. The time is fulfilled that the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of God, repent and believe. Repent and believe. The culmination of human history (laughs) begins with the words, the time is fulfilled. In the sovereign plan of God, Jesus is ushering in something new. Jesus is ushering in, in the kingdom of God with his death and resurrection as the apex of his plan. Now the question becomes, what is your part in God's plan of salvation? What is your part? As I've stated, you're not an autonomous robot. You're not a toy that is to be wound up ahead of time and then you press the button and the toy just does what it's pre-programmed to do. John Murray states, In salvation, God does not deal with us as machines. He deals with us as persons, and therefore salvation brings the whole range of our activity within its scope. And there he's just quoting Ephesians 2.8, By grace, we are saved through faith. After God gives the gift of faith and repentance, these tools are used to cultivate a relationship with God. While God and God alone saves, a synergistic relationship has been developed using the tools of faith and repentance. Logan and I were dialoguing this week about this topic of faith and repentance. and I bumped into a quote by a theologian that I trust. It's actually John Murray. And I shared the quote with Logan. I'm like, what do, you, what do you think about this? And we disagreed with him. I'm going to tell you why. He stated that faith is an act of an individual only, right? That faith is something that you individually act upon. Now, I concede wholeheartedly that faith needs to be put into action, but faith needs to come from somewhere. In order to receive a gift and use the gift, there needs to be a gift giver. Faith and repentance are both gifts from God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a closer look at these two gifts. First, we're going to look at faith, and we're going to look at repentance, and we're going to see how they come together in the Christian life. I know I just quoted Murray a moment ago, but I want to do it again. I think what he says here about faith is really helpful, this portion. Faith is not belief of propositions of truth respecting the Savior, however essential an ingredient of faith such belief is. Faith is trust in a person the person of Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves to Him. It is not simply believing in Him. It is believing in Him and on Him. Like, you all know I love theology. I love theology. But Orthodox Christian theology must lead to a relationship in the person of Jesus Christ. Like, give me a theology book, I'll eat it up all day long. I love it. But it must lead to Christ. If it does not, then we're simply having an epistemological moment. We're just doing something intellectual. When you read the word believe in verse 15, it also means faith. Perhaps it's stating the obvious. Both English words, faith and believe, are translated out of that same Greek word, pistuo. It could also mean trust or to put faith in. To simplify the concept of faith, consider all the things you 
place faith in every single day, right? You place faith when you get into the car and you start driving around, right? You're hoping, you're, you're trusting that the car is going to work the way it's supposed to. Like every time I board an airplane, I trust in mechanics that I've never met and a pilot that I see for 10 seconds tops. I mean, it kind of blows my mind when you think about it. At least when I'm driving a car, I got my own hand on the wheel. But when I step into a a giant tube with wings, I trust in so many people while I'm 30,000 feet in the air. It's crazy when you stop to think about it. You place faith or trust in authorities, right? Children should trust their parents. Church members should trust their pastors. Ideally, we want to trust our politicians. (laughs) I say ideally. So you can see that faith has at least two connected dimensions here. Faith is to be received, and faith is to be exercised. I place faith in the pilots to fly the plane, and then I put faith into action by stepping onto the giant tube with wings. Our confession of faith captures both dimensions well. And I quote, The grace of faith is a work of the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of the elect, by which they are enabled to believe for their saving of their souls. This grace of faith is ordinarily brought about by the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel, through God's word. It is also increased and strengthened. Now you see the second part, it's like, how do I enter into this activity? It is also increased and strengthened by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God. I could add singing right there. So we read in our confession of faith that God the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of man to save, and it is the grace of faith that saves. We also read about how we can strengthen our faith. Remember, it's synergistic, working together. Again, before I step into the plane, I believe that the pilot is sober, competent, and skilled to fly me, usually from Des Moines to my connecting flight in Chicago. I need to receive the endowment of trust, and then I need to act upon that endowment. We read in Ephesians 2.8 that faith is received from God, and it's a gift. Upon receiving the gift, faith is to be cultivated. First Peter describes growing in faith. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a large megachurch in the Twin Cities, and um, their tagline is where faith comes to life. This church is a place where faith comes to life. I've always appreciated that tagline. The faith of a Christian is not supposed to sit on top of the mantle by the fireplace to collect dust. A Christian's faith in God needs to take on a Christ-like shape. The way your faith takes on a Christ-like shape is that you engage in Christ-centered activities. You you cultivate a a Christ-centered heart. Allow me to use marriage as an example of what it looks like to to grow in faith, to to grow in Christ-likeness. Over 16 years ago, Sharice and I were married. 
when we were first married, when before that, neither of us knew what we were getting into. I mean, let's be honest. Neither of us could look down the corridor of time and truly know what was going to become of that other person. Like, it's a bit of a risk. I mean, it was a great risk. I'm happy for it. <laughs> Things turned out all right. I mean, truth be told, she uh, told me before we were engaged that she would never marry a pastor. But here we are. So we get married. But what is supposed to happen day after day, month after month, and year after year of faithfully loving one another? In 16 years, our thoughts and attitudes have become more similar. Um, Some of the differences that existed have been eradicated or narrowed. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are differences, some more obvious than others. But we, whether we realize it or not, are more alike today than we were 16 years ago. When you exercise faith in God, you become more like Christ. Now, Christ does not become more like you. That's where the analogy just falls off a cliff, and I get that. But you exercise your faith muscle when you read God's Word. You exercise your faith muscle when you pray, develop Christian relationships, share the gospel with someone who is not a Christian. You go to church. You fast from food or social media or video games. You grow in your faith when you fight against sin and fight for the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, and self-control. There are so many ways in which we can exercise our faith. Parents, when you demonstrate patience to your children, you grow in faith because God has been patient with you. Children, like when you exert some self-control and don't talk back to your parents, right? You're exercising a level of faith because these attributes are connected to the source who is God. You're growing in your relationship with God. When Jesus says, believe or have faith, he's talking about something that took place in a moment but lasts a lifetime. A person with a regenerated heart receives the gift of faith and then pursues God in faith for the rest of their life. So that's the faith component. Now the other side of the coin is repentance. Uh, you, You can think of repentance and faith as conjoined twins, right? In one sense, they're separate. Now we can talk about it, but they're connected. Which one comes first? I don't know. Theologians debate that. What one should we think about first? Both. Repentance has similar dimensions of faith. Allow me to define repentance, and then we can examine the dimensions. It is common to hear from a pastor that repentance is turning away from sin and toward God. Oftentimes, it is the idols in your life that cause you to sin. Repentance is you turning your back on those idols and choosing to worship the one true God. I would say yes and amen to this definition. But repentance also means a change of the mind. Right? Something consciously going on upstairs as well. Repentance connects the intellect and the action where the two turn away from sin and toward God. So that is like repentance in a nutshell. Are you consciously making a decision to say no to that, that thing that tempts me, and yes to that? 
Repentance takes place the moment the heart is regenerated, and repentance continues to be an ongoing grace in the Christian life. We have a hard time thinking of repentance like that as a grace from God. The ministry of John the Baptist was marked by a message focused on repentance. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, in in those days John the Baptist came proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea, repent, same words as Christ, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of Christ is consistent with John the Baptist, and when you just, frankly, when you go look at the Old Testament prophets and what they were saying, repent, turn, repent, turn. The Old Testament is just littered with declarations of God calling his people to turn back, to change their mind, to repent. But this is the side of the coin we have trouble coming to terms with, is it not? Right? We all love a good message about saving faith or growing in our faith. Right? But turning from sin requires acknowledging you are a sinner. Turning away from sin requires identifying the sin. I mean, that kind of heart work is really hard for many of us. There's not a lot of people who sign up for the seminar on repentance at the next latest and greatest Christian conference. A while back, I was uh, following a Twitter thread of a pastor who made this statement. He was telling his followers, summarize the gospel. That's basically what he said, summarize the gospel for me. And he had a big following, and so the responses came through, and I was just kind of scrolling through them, like how are people rightly summarizing the gospel, or how are they wrongly summarizing the gospel? A lot of good responses uh, kind of around the grace of God, the love of God, or have faith in God. But one person was lambasted for his response. He simply said, repent and believe. (laughs) He quoted Jesus from Mark 1, verse 15. Now, why do you think he was ridiculed for his response? I think the answer is obvious. Everyone loves to receive a gift, but when God says, here, there's always resistance, right, in the soul when we are told we must turn down what the flesh enjoys. There's resistance from the soul when we're told to turn down what the flesh enjoys. I mean, I could give you a thousand examples of what this looks like, but here's just one. Let's say you have a man who is just obsessed with making money, right? Now, there's no problem with making money. No problem with being responsible for money. It's a good thing. The Bible talks a lot about being a good steward of money and material items in general. But we all know that sinful man can corrupt any good gift from God. So you have a man who just, it's all about the money. It's all about the Benjamins. And then the Lord saves him. Saves him. After the Lord saved him, God makes demands upon his life. There are demands. After the Lord saves him, he has to change. That man needs to repent from the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.10, and turn toward God. Repenting from the love of money will result in realizing that every dime in his bank account and every stock that he's invested to is actually not his, but it belongs to God. It might be the case that this person needs to constantly repent from this sin because it takes time to disconnect this particular attachment from the human heart. So not only does he need to repent once, 
But he might need to do it again and again and again because he knows his sinful heart and it does take time to disconnect a sin from something we enjoyed so much. And here's the deal. The grace of God is at work when a person repents. The grace of God is at work when a person repents. Repentance is a holy moment infused with the grace of God. In Acts 2, Peter delivers his famous like, Pentecost sermon. What does he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You cannot get away from this theme if you read the Bible. The call to turn to repent. God is gracious when a person repents. When a person repents, God forgives. Like, who couldn't use some of that these days? I'll sign up for that. When a person repents, a confession is being made. There's a confession that you are a sinner and God is good. Confession within repentance satisfies the longing soul to be at peace with God. Now here is the clear connections between repentance and faith. Here's why Jesus says that this is the message of the gospel in his kingdom. In faith, we repent of sin, and repentance leads to greater faith in God who forgives sin. Let me say it again. In faith, we repent of sin. And repentance leads to greater faith in the God who forgives our sins. When you are actively pursuing repentance from sin and greater faith in God, you are effectively making a declaration, I believe. Not only do I need to be forgiven, but I trust and I believe that God has forgiven. I can hang my hat on that. I want to now end in how I began by talking about revival. Let's circle back to that. I'm not going to lie. I am extremely intrigued about what is going on at Asbury University and Theological Seminary in this small town of Kentucky. I'm intrigued. I, I am curious about what is going on. But I would have to ask, are the right outcomes being pursued? That's what I want to know. I do not know how to answer that question. I'm not there. So here, but here is my official position about how I think about what is going on at Asbury University and Theological Seminary. In Acts 5, the Pharisees had no idea what to do with Peter and the apostles. Turn there. They were preaching boldly. They were doing signs and wonders. Some of the Pharisees were like, this has got to stop. Right? And so a council was convened, and all the higher ups of the Jewish community got together. And one of the wiser Pharisees said the following So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. These are really wise words. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Man, that's my official position right there. <laughs> Acts 5, verses 38 and 39. But I want to share with you one more official position that I have about revival. You do not need to go to Asbury University to experience revival. There's this idea, if I get, and I was thinking about this myself, I'm like, I got a, you know, a ton of time, I could carve out three days, I could drive there, check it out, see what's going on. Maybe if I just sit down, things will just like, be like the Holy Spirit descending upon me like a dove. That could take place, couldn't it? Revival can begin right here with you right now. Frankly, I am less concerned with what is going on at a small university and seminary in, in Kentucky and immensely more concerned with what is going on in our homes, in this local church, and in our community, right? In our community. I hope and pray that as the word of God is preached and practiced, that men and women would be saved and there would be an awakening of faith and repentance. That we'd lean into these twin pillars that hold up revival. We'd say, yes, I can do that. I can, I can be honest with my life and with my sin and I can come to God and repent and I can, I can trust and I can know, pleading upon Jesus and his blood, that I am forgiven of my sin. That can happen here. So do not be mistaken that you got to go somewhere to experience revival. I pray that every person that comes to the doors of the church knows that this is a place where revival can begin there. I pray that for our kids, you kids, that you'd see the beauty and the grace of God in repentance and faith. Pray that non-Christians would come and hear the gospel and the Spirit would move upon them. There would be repentance and faith. So may repentance and faith be the pillars of such an awakening. May repentance and faith be the pillars of this church, right? As the gospel is preached. That was the message of Christ. I see no need to deviate from his message. None. Repent and believe. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to transition into celebrating the Lord's table. I intentionally use the word celebrate when we practice in the Lord's table because faith that the Son of God has died for our sins and giving us new life is worth celebrating. It is worth celebrating the gift of repentance where we come to God needy and broken and he meets you right where you are at. We celebrate all that God has done in Christ for our good and for his glory. Therefore, there might not be a better verse in the Bible than Mark 1.15 that allows us to transition into celebrating the Lord's table. Friends, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.